I'm just gonna go right up here and say that I don't associate with people who think they're Shadow the Hedgehog. That and if you do, you're gonna have to get out of this that, podcast that right hurts now. Me. But I am Shadow the Hedgehog. Believe me. Mm, too edgy for me. Chaos control. <laughs> that just reminds me of Get Smart. You ever see that movie? Uh, no, because it's not Sonic Adventure Two Battle. I actually never played. I mean, this this might. I don't know. You get out of this podcast should I not, right now. <laughs> should I not admit this? I've never played Sonic Adventure. Get out of here. I never had a GameCube. This is your room, but leave. Wait, did Sonic Adventure ever come out on the PS2? I don't know. I, I feel like it didn't. It I on, feel like it was only on the I Xbox it, and the it was GameCube. On, is it even on the Xbox? I don't know that. It's on the GameCube. Oh, Dreamcast. Sorry. Dreamcast, then GameCube. Well, Dreamcast makes sense. That's a Sega system. Sonic Adventure 2. Yeah, I feel like Battle came out on because the, the GameCube, GameCube was the greatest console of all time. Yeah, well, let me tell you about how I based my second gen console buying decision. I don't know if I'm is second gen correct? I don't know. First gen for me because I was a 90s kid was PS1 and it has one of the name, so I'm going to call that first gen even though there were clearly other consoles before it. See, there's like NES, Super NES, then Yeah. Like, N64. I feel like you can't say first, second gen. You can just say current gen, past gen. But like PS2 was what two generations ago, little, almost little three. Washy coming up on three. Um. Anyway, I based my buying decision for that system off of the one that had the most DDR games. And very as deep. fun as DDR Mario Mix is, it's not very difficult. You can dance with Waluigi. You can, but That's look, all that it's matters. not very difficult, and it doesn't have all my favorite songs That's on all it. That ma- Listen, like. Half of my top nine games are on the GameCube. None of my top nine games are on the GameCube. Yeah, that's because you had DDR. What are your top nine games, Martin? I don't know those off the top of my head. Whoa, you don't even know your top nine games off the top of your head? No, because I might have to put Final Fantasy 15 in there, and I'm not sure. I don't who's either. Booted. To be honest, um, I had a probably list. Gonna get booted. I have a grid somewhere. Let's see here. I have a 20. Oh, I think I changed mine because. Because uh, Towerfall is definitely on there. Overwatch is definitely on there. Oh, yeah. And Splatoon is definitely on there now. So this is old. No, I'm almost done with Final Fantasy 15, and it's almost certainly going to be in my top nine. So I have to... You think so? I have to rethink that. Okay. Let's see here. I want. I would say Overwatch, DDR, and... We do not play the same kind know. of games. No, we don't at not, all. Not in the slightest. Splatoon. Where are your narrative games? <laughs> <laughs> Where are your single player um, linear storylines? Portal 2. There are none. Is that what you're telling me? No, none Portal, of those Portal games. Portal 2. That is not the deepest game I've ever played in my life, Tom. Come on. That is a gimmicky puzzle game that is fun, but not that deep. It does have a narrative. It has a story. That narrative is not that deep. It's very deep. There's Did I cake? cry at the end? You no. should have. No, because the you cake should've. wasn't a lie. They showed it in the credits. Well, the it cake was, was a lie there. because Sean never got it. The of getting the cake was a lie, but the yeah. cake itself was not a lie. Maybe they didn't know about the cake. They need to know semantics. See, it's deep because they thought the cake was a lie. They thought they knew that the world had lied to them, but in fact, the world hadn't lied to them. They just You're haven't right. discovered whole, the next level of truth changed. yet. Portal is actually the deepest game I ever just made. I fell in love with that potato. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was a good potato. Yeah, potatoes, potatoes, look, potatoes. Portal 2 has to be on my favorite games list because, look, he's Cave Johnson's around my wall right there. That is true. Duh. That is true. Anyway... Okay. At uh, something to about mitigate the risk book. of this becoming a gaming podcast, today we're shaking things up because we have, in the past few episodes, switched this over into being like a Q and A show, which I think is fun. 
Yeah. But we did mention that if we happen to read a book that we both find interesting and helpful, we might do book book yeah. summary, book yeah, I discussion. Read, I read sometimes. Book club. Yeah, Put we're doing a book club episode. Brain. Yeah. So lots of words went into my brain. Uh, I recently read the book Deep Work by Cal Newport. What a coincidence. Yeah. I recently read that book. Whoa. What? I bet I didn't even tell you to read it either. Nah. <laughs> so back in episode 100, and what is this, 140? So 40 I think so. episodes yeah, 140. ago. 140, that's a good number. Yeah. I don't know why. I just it's, it's a good feeling number. Yeah. Anyway, 40 episodes ago uh, for episode 100, I thought that I might do something weird or special. I was like, oh, this is the 100th episode. I got to do something. So maybe I'll do... Uh, a compilation of all the best quotes from the past hundred episodes, or maybe I'll go record. Actually, I can tell you, I think I was, I might've been in Colorado around the time that a hundred came out. And I, think I was true. thinking about doing episode a hundred from the top of a mountain. Yeah. But it was so windy up there that I just knew yeah. the, the audio on, quality would be on the air. Worst you just, ever. you kind of pass out from lack of oxygen <laughs> and just the podcast is, there's that. It's like this episode, Yo guys, welcome to the, it never yeah. went out. This. So uh, I'm glad I didn't do that. What I ended up deciding on doing was I emailed Cal Newport again because his book, Deep Work, was coming out. And uh, he had been back on episode 35, I think, to talk about So Good They Can't Ignore You, which is another very good book. And I said, hey, the 100th episode of my podcast is coming up. I would love to talk with you about this book. And I never actually read it when I had him on the show oh. um, because I was just incredibly busy and I figured that talking to the man himself would be a pretty decent substitution. You're trying to get the Cliff's Notes straight from the source. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think that turned out fine, at least for the episode, because that episode ended up being the most popular episode of the podcast still. But... That is crazy to me. I had... Uh, I don't know. I just got myself into a funk earlier this year. I think 2016 has been a pretty good year overall for College Info Geek. But it has also been the year of increasing responsibilities for me because we're doing videos on the YouTube channel. We're doing podcast episodes. Anna is doing graphics for every podcast episode. And people want my attention. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to New York next week to film yeah. for a TV show. Notice me, like, senpai. There's all, yeah, all these people want their senpai to notice them. And what I found that doing was really fragmenting my attention and I'd wake up and I'd have like a zillion things to do. And that was, I feel like it was decreasing the quality of my writing, which in turn was decreasing the quality of my videos, at least in terms of my perception of them, because I felt like I used to be able to write hilarious jokes and just write, you know, for hours on end easily when I was in college. And now I sit down and I struggle to write a paragraph, you know, so I started reading Deep Work. I'm not even sure why I started reading it. I don't I don't feel like I reached out to this book for answers. I think it was more a case of people kept asking me my thoughts on it, and it was sitting in my iBooks library. And uh, over Thanksgiving the vacation, I, I figured, hey, I'll read this. And um, it had a huge effect on me. Yeah. Just Cal's hypothesis in this book and him just kind of spelling out that, yes, Deep Work the ability to work in an intense, concentrated state for a long period of time is incredibly important, but also it's becoming increasingly rare because smartphones 
and increasing responsibilities and distractions and the fact that you are training your brain to crave little injections of novelty anytime you get bored because you instantly pull your phone out and check Twitter or you check Instagram or whatever are literally sapping your brain's ability to do creative work. And I felt that. So I read the book, I took a ton of notes, and I started making changes that have had a pretty big effect in my life pretty quickly, actually. And that's why I wanted you to read the book as well. And uh, so this is going to be a discussion episode, and we have decided that the best way to do it, because if I'm not careful, I'll just try to summarize the entire book in an episode, and that will take me forever. Yeah. So we have three lessons each. I don't know. Is lessons a good word? For I don't know. It? Three three uh, lessons, and if it turns out they don't feel like lessons, just insert a different word, and it'll make sense. I don't know. Three interesting tidbits of information. Three things that we <laughs> took from it. Yeah, I've got a little bit of, of setup before that, but I picked three lessons, whatever you want to call them, from the book that I thought were interesting. They are by no means the most important lessons. I mean, I have... I have pages of notes yeah, I highlighted from this book. 48 passages from this book as I was reading it. Can I see I how many I highlighted? Conservative. Uh, I, I did it on Kindle. Oh, you do Kindle. I do iBooks. Yeah, I have. I can't tell, but I think it's more than 48. I have a lot of highlights from the book. But also, uh, I started physically writing out. And these aren't just notes about the ideas. This is a deep work principles to implement plan. And I have two full pages of bullet points here. Oh, yeah, just like your plan for putting it into your life. Yeah, and so th this was me on a plane coming back from Thanksgiving. I was writing, I was, I basically went back through the entire book and I was writing down everything that I thought I should at least consider trying. And I didn't finish it, uh, but there are two full pages of things in here. So some of my lessons will be pulled from this implementation plan. Um, and once I finish it, you know, I'll be trying new things out and probably sharing them as I go in the future. And then some of them will be more informational as well. We probably should tell people what show notes. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah, probably. if you want to read the book, you can get the link to it at the show notes. We'll have some other links for things we mention in the show and links for reviewing and rating the podcast on iTunes, which is probably the best way to support the show. If you happen to like it, that is a good way to bump us up the rankings in iTunes so we can crush the competition like Sparrow's Egg Between Thighs. Yeah. And that's what makes me happy in this, you know, in this life. Yep. Nothing else. Yep. Just crushing sparrows eggs. <laughs> but it also helps more people see it. So CIGpodcast.com slash 140. We'll get you over to those show notes and you can check out all those links over there. Uh, I wanted to start out with just kind of like a statement of what Cal talks about in the intro to the book. He, he starts out with a story about the, uh, who is it, a philosopher, psychologist, Carl, Carl Jung. Is that how you yeah. say it? Yeah. Uh, I think he was, I think he was, did he study under Freud or something? I know his work was kind so. of like an antithesis to Freud or like an answer I, to I it. I he studied under Freud. But I think he, he studied under it. And the book starts out with a story about how he went out and built a cabin in the middle of the woods so he could basically isolate himself from all society. And that's how he got writing done. And that's how he got the amazing philosophical work that is his answer to Freud written. And I know you were jealous about that. Yeah, I was pretty jealous. I've been <laughs> You've been mentioning something like that, that. forever. Mm -hmm. um, and I can tell you, actually, I've, I've had friends who have booked Airbnbs at cabins out in the forest, which sounds like the setup to a horror movie, but they've done that and gone out and written. 
Um, in fact, I think my friend Jeff Goins has told me about there's a place in Georgia. It's a writer's cabin. Nice. And just this lady runs it. I can't remember the name of it. Maybe I can find it at some point later in the future, maybe link to it. But it's just this lady who runs this cabin. It purposely does not have internet. And you can book like a week to go out there and you just write and you walk the grounds. See, that sounds awesome. And you sip coffee and you talk to the other writers occasionally and then you go back and write more. That sounds like a life. Sounds, well, I, I would get bored if I did it forever, but it sounds like something that if I took two or three days to go do, I could get a lot of good work done. And I've done certain things like that. And that'll actually be part of one of my lessons here is the kind of the idea behind doing something crazy like that. But he starts the book with that story and then he kind of hits you with this deep work hypothesis, as he calls it, which is that deep work, the ability to work in an intense, unbroken string of focused concentration is increasingly valuable because... Uh, as he talks about later in the book, more and more low skill and shallow mental effort type jobs are becoming automated. They're becoming less valuable. So yeah. deep work is becoming increasingly valuable, but it's also becoming increasingly rare because we use what he calls network tools and what I call dumb smartphones. Actually, what you probably call dumb smartphones. Yeah. Because <laughs> every time you have your phone out, you're like, this is dumb. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's the worst. We, we're constantly distracted by social networks, by games, by little feeds that we can in, just instantly refresh and see something from. And uh, so you have like this dichotomy between, you know, this skill is increasingly valuable, but increasingly people are losing the ability to do it. And he points out that at a biological level in your brain, when you let yourself instantly go over to a network tool, a social media account, and get a little injection of novelty, you're training your brain to need that. And as a consequence, you are robbing your brain of that ability to sink into deep work and to be very creative and work for a long period of time. So the whole book is kind of about how to get out of this practice and get into the practice of doing deep work. And he also talks about, he has three different groups of people who are going to be the winners, quote unquote, in the new economy going forward into the future. So one of these groups is the owners. Um, and, and kind of a lot of this is centered around the fact that our economy is increasingly run by super complex information systems, machines, AI, all kinds of stuff like that. So the people who will win in a world dominated by these kind of increasingly complex information systems are number one, the people who own them. And unfortunately, that's not very actionable for most of us because I don't know about you guys, but I don't own supercomputers. I don't own IBM or Apple yeah. or whatever. It's pretty hard to just say, you know what? I'm going to be a venture capitalist tomorrow. Wait a minute. What if I go to... I'm just going to do that. Please transfer ownership of Apple Incorporated.com. It's probably going to give you a or virus. Or to me.com. If you get a virus Can I become, during podcast, I'm going to laugh. Uh, this this domain is available. You want to you wanna make some dumb website on it? No. Okay. Well, anyway, that didn't work. That doesn't sound like deep work to me. That didn't work. So I'm not the owner of Apple. I wish that would have worked, but it didn't. So the other two groups are the ones that are going to be a bit more actionable. So he talks about uh, high-skilled workers and the superstars, the people who are absolute top of the game in their field. And I actually, I had to read this section a couple of times because the first time I read it, I thought, 
aren't superstars just a subset of high-skilled workers? Yeah. Basically. So I went back and read it, and the difference is that the high-skilled workers, as Cal calls them, are people who can work with very complex information systems. So he's talking about people like Nate Silver, who runs 538, uh, which you probably spent way too much time on during the election, and I did yep. too. <laughs> yep. uh, but Nate Silver is a computer statistician who got his start in baseball statistics, and he used what's called Bayesian probability theory to accurately predict baseball games and then then move that over to predicting elections. And uh, he accurately predicted the 2008 and 2012 elections, did not accurately predict the 2016 election, but did get the, closer. He may have been the closest. Wasn't though, because... he was he was the least wrong? Yeah. Out of all the people who were very wrong. <laughs> yeah. But so the, the entire point between high skilled workers, superstars, is the high skilled workers are people who can work with computers, who can work with really complex information systems. Basically, the further away you can get yourself from anything that can be automated, anything that's low skill, the better. Superstars is a different concept altogether. With superstars, what he really wants to get across is this point that whatever field you're in, be it high-skilled, be it working with weird Bayesian probability theory algorithms, or whether it be singing, the superstars are the people who are at the top of their game and who can produce the highest quality work in that game. And what I took away from this is he points out that if you listen to 10 mediocre singers, or even 10 of like the third to uh, 13th best singers in the world, that doesn't add up to the pleasure of listening to the best singer in the world. You know, yeah. there isn't like this cumulative add-on effect that you can just, you can pile on more and more mediocre people to get the best. When you're the best, you produce an elite level that the aggregate of everyone else can't touch. So if you want to win in the new economy, regardless of what your area is, for me, it's making study tips videos, you know, for Martin, it might be producing this podcast or doing web development or something like that. For you, it may be uh, being a basketball player or something. Become the best and you will win. Become third best and, well, you may do well, but there's like a power law distribution. Um, and he didn't talk about this in the book, but I think I read on his website one time, he quoted some statistics about the highest paid opera singers and the third highest paid opera singer was making like a respectable amount of money, like 100K or something. But then the highest paid opera singer was making millions. Oh, yep. Because, you know, again, the best gets everything, you know, the lion's share of the treasure. So that kind of goes into this whole idea of using deep work, learning how to cultivate a habit of doing deep work, of avoiding these distractions and spending long periods of time in deep, intense concentration will help you to build the skills and will help you to produce high quality work at a fast rate. And those are the things that are going to help you become either a superstar or that are going to help you gain the skills to work with super crazy ultra computers that will eventually take over the world and kill us one day. Yep. Looking forward Yay! to it. Yay! Exactly. So with that being said, Martin, I'm going to let you start with your first lesson because I took, I don't know, 20 minutes to say all that. <laughs> all right. Well, I have a feeling this episode is going to run a little longer. It might. Than the last few. It might. And but hey, maybe half fine. an hour it's, it's is not enough. Thing. It's doing justice to a book. Yeah. But I want to do justice. So the first lesson that I wrote down, and you already, you already touched on this a little bit, but the first thing that really surprised me in this book 
was the part where he mentioned that we're literally conditioning our brains to seek distraction and instant novelty mm-hmm. when we get bored standing in line for three seconds and immediately pull out our phones. And like, I already hated pulling out my phone because, because I perceived everything I was looking at to be pretty low value, but I didn't, it didn't occur to me. Yeah. I see what you're doing there. <laughs> you think you're clever, don't you? But it didn't occur to me that I was simultaneously, not only was I wasting my time on some low value nonsense on mm-hmm. my Twitter feed, but I was training myself to need that distraction and to not be able to just kind of sit still and accept boredom. Yeah. Remember being bored? I remember no internet. Being bored is weird now in 2016 because you've got your smartphone. Yeah. What I remember it, like sitting on the couch now? in my house when I was 10 years old and thinking, I'm bored. I literally don't know what to do. Yeah. And I think at the time I, I did own a PlayStation, but my parents had limited me to an hour a day or something like it's that. It's just like smart in hindsight. Being actually. bored doesn't happen as much anymore. Yeah. I can't think and, of a time uh, recently when I've been bored. There was a for a long period of time, at least. There was a point where he actually mentioned that that's actually kind of useful because mm-hmm. even though you're not really focusing on anything specific, you're every time you're bored for 10 minutes, that's 10 minutes you trained your brain to not immediately need to grab something that's entertaining. Yeah. And... I just I just thought that was really interesting. I had never thought about it. I remember talking to him on episode 100 and thinking all these things he's talking about sound very useful, but they also sound very mundane. Because what he was saying is be bored. Yeah. When you're standing in the checkout line, don't pull your phone out. Just stare at the wall. When you need to take a break, you don't need to do any crazy things on your breaks. Just walk around and get some water. And See, then I get back find to that work. relaxing, honestly, like it's because you so pull out simple. your phone and there might be something that distracts you for the next 10 minutes because yeah. it was like a stressful email. You didn't need to read it for another six hours, but you checked it anyway and mm-hmm. now it's in your head. But I mean, I've already had Facebook off my phone for a while because I don't find my newsfeed very valuable. But yeah, because of this, I took Twitter off my phone because I never tweet anyway. So I give oh. myself that option. And now I don't have email on my phone because when's the last time I actually needed an email on my phone? You know what? I just have my laptop on me all the time. So I'll be honest. I've been justifying keeping some of these things on my phone because I travel so much. But I could just re-download them when I travel if yeah, I really, really need not, them. If you, see, that's the thing. If I need my email on my phone, I will just re-download it. If I'm traveling, I have my laptop on me. I can get the code. I can install it. I can log in. All right. It'll be fine. I don't know if I'm going to go as far but, as you because I do more social media than you do. Yeah. But I am going to delete Facebook and Twitter off well, of my phone so right there. There, they're gone. I was thinking about this and I I might have actually finished this book at that point mm-hmm. in in Minneapolis. I was on a trip in Minneapolis and because of reading this section, I was like, "All right, I'm not going to check anything until Sunday. I won't check my email. Mm-hmm. I won't check my social media." I do not care about these things. My phone goes over there. The ringer's on, so if somebody calls, I'll hear it. But I'm not going to pick up my phone. And we just walked. uh, My girlfriend and I walked everywhere through the skywalks. We went to a ton of places. And it was really, really nice to do so much without pulling out my phone. Navigate the skywalks. Just looked at the maps on the skywalks like somebody who didn't have technology in his pocket. Mm -hmm. And then... It was just so peaceful that I don't think I'm going to put that stuff back. Yeah. I, there are a few things in the book that I'm wanting to say that I didn't write down as lessons. But one of the things he talks about is when you're evaluating the use 
of a social network, you know, like you're evaluating what, what's the benefit of joining Instagram? What's the benefit of joining Twitter? A lot of people come at it using this uh, quote unquote, any benefit approach where any potential benefit is automatically considered a reason for yeah, it's good enough. It. So with Twitter, oh, I could meet new people or I could stay up to date on the latest news. That's a benefit. But then they don't even think about the drawbacks. Yeah, what, like what are losing the downsides? what you just said, losing that ability to I can't enjoy my vacation because I'm in my on my phone all the time. Mm -hmm. Like that's a horrible downside. I paid money for a vacation. And I remember when I was younger, there were a few video games where I got super engrossed, kind of like you do now with games. Um, Rogue Galaxy for the PS2 is the oh, yeah. one that I could think of where yep. I just was like, that was my life for a while. And beyond video games, like I would go skateboard and I would skateboard for hours and I'd just practice doing pop shove it's off the curb for like three hours straight. And I didn't have a cell phone. Yeah. There was literally never a thought that popped into my head to think, you know, I should check my email right now. I should see how yeah. many, how long can you how many views are on the new video? Out. Exactly. So I think we've lost something there. By constantly porting our brain over to this other area that doesn't represent the now, doesn't represent what's going on well, here in the present. I guess the thing, it was, it was cutting value not only from me when I was trying to focus and work, but me when I was trying to relax. It was cutting mm -hmm. value from both of those things. Now, yeah, if, if that's you in, true. If you intentionally log in and you're like, okay, I'm going to use this 10 minutes, catch up on social media, that's different. You did it on purpose. Mm -hmm. But letting it sneak in when you didn't tell it to. What was that... I think the book mentioned something. It was like the Zagartnik effect, uh, I believe. Don't remember. Where, and let me, I'm going to verify it real quick because I think it's named Zagartnik. Because of that fancy name, I forgot it. Yeah, I think, I think this is what it is. People remember uncompleted or interrupted tasks better than completed tasks. And I think what he, he mentioned this as uh, in connection with people always being connected to their work. And that puts them in a state of always thinking about everything at work that is uncompleted. So he kind of, instead of talking about tasks individually, he talked about like work as a task. And when you have access to Twitter, if it's related to your work, or when you have access to your email, because most people do and it's related to their work, work as a concept is always uninterrupted. And that means there's no separation between relaxation and work. So if you're work. still getting emails from your boss at 8 exactly. p.m., you're constantly and you're like, should I out? answer these? Will my boss hate me if I don't answer these? Oh, no. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and one other thing I wanted to mention here with your lesson, you talked about just you don't want to get stressed out by an email that comes in. So if you're checking email in the grocery line and all of a sudden there's an email that comes in that says, hey, you have a tax thing due next Wednesday. Obviously, you don't have to deal with that until next Wednesday, yeah, but now you're yet. thinking about it. I'm taking on future problems. Like if mm -hmm. I read an email that's like all of your accounts – just got horribly hacked, and I'm stuck in line, and I'm on my way uh -oh. home. Guess what? I can't do anything about that until I get home. So yeah. I don't need to know that until I get home. Yeah, exactly. Then I can freak out and have a heart attack. But if I have a heart attack in the grocery store, I didn't even didn't even fix it yet. There's a concept that he talks about in the book uh, called attentional residue, where when you switch your attention oh, to yeah. social media or email or just checking anything, or uh, like a lot of people like to do, they'll switch from their main task and they'll take like five minutes to go do a smaller task. Well, if that smaller task does not become completed or if you check your email, whatever you exposed yourself to at the time, it doesn't get off your mind when you switch back to your main task. It stays there, kind of gunks up your attention and it hinders your ability to get back into that state of flow with your main task. 
And that's why when I did that video on taking breaks, um, one of the things I tried to emphasize is that you shouldn't go on social media or check your email or do anything like that during your tiny little five minute breaks because you're just sabotaging the next work session. So save that for your big breaks when you take like half an hour away. Yeah. You know? So you have enough time to complete the thought and get it out of your system. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I wanted to present for my three quote unquote lessons, I wanted to go over the four different depth philosophies he talks about in this book, because he mentions that there's not just one way to do deep work, but however you do it, you want to have an idea in mind of how you're going to schedule your life or structure your life so you can do it regularly. So he goes through four different options. One is the monastic approach. And the monastic approach basically means I am the kind of person who is always doing deep work. I never expose myself to shallow work. I'm a monk pretty much. Yeah. You delete all that nonsense. Nobody mm -hmm. emails you anymore. And you, that's pretty harsh. That's pretty yeah, hard. It's to pretty do tough at this point. You have a lot of things you'd need to do that are shallow sometimes. Mm -hmm. So, but there are some people he mentions who do it pretty successfully. Uh, there's a computer scientist named Donald Knuth, and I think like he's in his 70s now or something or 80s. But he's done some fantastic work in the field of like analyzing algorithm performance and improving it. And he, I believe, doesn't use email, which is pretty interesting awesome for like one for of the a most computer scientists. Yeah, one of the most influential computer scientists ever. He doesn't Jealous. use email. I think he just has mail. He answers. And he has a an assistant who maybe has an email address and then occasionally will will give things to him. So he's kind of an example of somebody who tries to almost never expose himself to the shallow types of work because he knows his most valuable things he creates are done in that state of depth. So it's only logical to spend as much time as possible in state of depth. Uh, another good example is one of my favorite authors, Neil Stevenson who wrote Snow Crash, he wrote The Diamond Age, Necronomicon, or not Necronomicon. <laughs> he wrote The Necronomicon. <laughs> you want to come back from the dead? It took a lot of deep work to write that one. I know, right? Deep in the in the nether regions. Yeah. Um, in the dead zone. Yeah, the dead zone. Garlic Jr.'s back. <laughs> you can't sacrifice speed for well, power. Now I've got attentional residue about Dragon Ball Z, so. It's okay. Just go look uh -oh. at my Frieza thing that my brother got me. Okay. Anyway, uh, he wrote Cryptonomicon. That's the book. And his most recent one was Seven Eves. I haven't read that one yet. Actually, I haven't read several of his books, but the ones I have read, I love. He also is like very staunchly against people emailing him. I think, I don't know if he still does, but when Cal Newport wrote the book, he went on Neil Stevenson's website and found this essay he'd written about his, uh, his philosophy of people contacting him, which is basically don't. <laughs> people who would like to uh, well, how did you, how did you word it? People who would like to get a slice of my time are, are politely asked to not or something like that. Yeah. It was something, something like that. Like all of my attention is already given to other things. Yeah. You can't have any. Leave and you're saying, you know, if, if I spend a lot of time writing, I can write novels, which is what I'm good at. Uh, if I spend a bunch of time traveling and giving talks and doing interviews and all that, I can't write novels and my value to the world is vastly decreased. Yeah. So he's very monastic. There's also uh, what's called the bimodal philosophy. And the bimodal philosophy is to spend a long stretch of time working in a monastic style, but then to switch to a more shallow work style. So there's, there's one professor that he talks about in the book who I believe was the youngest person ever to get a full tenured professor, professorship at 
his university, which I think is Georgetown, uh, and also has written like a ton of papers, ton of books, all kinds of stuff. And he also teaches. So his philosophy is I'll spend one semester, I think it's the fall semester, only doing research and writing and basically being off the grid. And then in the spring, I'll come and teach classes. I'll be really available. I'll have office hours. You know, I'm totally open for business. So he just kind of jumps back and forth between those two modes. That's something that's a little bit more realistic for people because most people don't have the luxury of being a famous author who can not talk to anyone and yeah. still make enough money to live. You know, the person we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, Carl Jung, was also like that. He built that crazy cabin in the woods to write his books, but he would also go back to Zurich and teach and hang out in coffee houses and have lots of discussions uh, for part of the year as well. And I think a lot of bands do this too, don't they? I mean, a, a bimodal deep work schedule kind of seems like the default schedule of most good bands. They go to the studio, huh. they write music, they record, they're, they're basically on, off the they're grid, on tour. and then they're on tour. Yeah. Huh. You know, and a band can't write an amazing album when they're on tour because they're on tour and they're partying and they're on stage and, you know, people are jumping up on stage and throwing beer bottles at them, head injuries. You can't write that stuff. You need like a good long stretch of time to not have beer bottles thrown at you in like a wooden cabin or something. In a wooden cabin. Yeah. In fact, I think uh, a band I really like, 10 Years, so they used to be signed to a label and they would go record in their studio. But I believe with their most recent album, they made their own label and they went and built their own studio in a cabin or something. Nice. And they went and recorded it there. So that is one option. So the next one is the one that I personally do. And this is called the rhythmic schedule. The rhythmic deep work philosophy is basically to have a set schedule every single day when you have a certain amount of time where you work deeply and then you work shallowly for the rest of the day. And uh, a good example of this is Jerry Seinfeld, because one of the things that he famously said helped him become a great comedian was he would write jokes every single day. And he would use what's called the chain method, basically building a streak of I've done X every single day. I don't want to break the chain, so I'm going to write today as well. And he would write a joke every day. And over time, he becomes a better comedian. Now, I do something like that, but what I do... Uh, and what forms a more important part of my daily schedule is just having a starting time. So one of the big things I've implemented from this book is dedicating my mornings to content creation, mostly writing. If I need to, it'll be filming. If I need to, it'll be podcasting sometimes. But for the most part, I try to use it for writing when I can. And the way that I've implemented that is number one, I plan my day out when the morning. So I will do my workout, do my morning routine. And then my first piece of work for the day is to sit down with a piece of paper and plan out all the things I'm going to do. And I try to time box it. And I try to keep from eight to noon only deep work time. And to further help that out, I've installed cold turkey on my computer. So cold turkey is an app that basically blocks all sorts of websites. It blocks all sorts of applications. And I have a custom block list that keeps me off of YouTube, keeps me off of Twitter, email, all kinds of stuff. Basically, it only lets me use the internet for research and use my computer for writing and building the things I need to build to keep this business going. So that is from 8 to noon. And then I also have a shutdown time at night, usually like 9 p.m., where it will not let me do those things as well. And that helps me a lot to keep this rhythmic schedule going. And I found that 
once I've gotten into the flow of working that way, a lot of the creativity that I felt I had lost started to come back. And I started to feel like the writer I used to be, which is awesome to feel. And then there is one other method, which is the journalistic method. And he, I think he named this after Walter Isaacson, who's a journalist for the New York Times, because I don't really see how journalistic fits with this. But journalistic is basically work deeply whenever you have free time. And he mentions that this is probably the toughest one to do correctly because you're not setting a schedule for yourself. You're just, whenever you've got a pocket of time, you go and, you know, while yourself away into a closet or something and work deeply. But for certain people who have the discipline to do it, it can work. Yeah. You've got and to be able to flip that switch really yeah. easily. And it might be the one for you if you have a really hectic schedule um, and you don't, you're not able to plan out how your day is going to go every single day. Maybe things change a lot stuff comes up. If that's you, then you might just need to be the kind of person who says, oh, I just got an hour. I'm going to use this to work deeply on something. Yeah. And you may need to train yourself to focus a little better to get to the point where you can do that mm -hmm. so quickly. But yeah. So look at those and try to select which one's going to work best for you. For me, it's the rhythmic one. Yeah. Okay. So let's see. Number two. I'm on uh, lesson number two. Mm -hmm. And mine is also social media related because I am a grumpy old man. And <laughs> I thought it was uh, interesting when he he was talking about something like you used to have to, to get people's attention, you have to provide something of value. You have to try hard and really work to get their attention. Mm. And now with the power of social media, essentially we've traded that over and so that we can say, Listen, I'll pay attention to your stuff regardless of how valuable it is to me if you pay attention to my stuff. So you follow each other's stuff. You like each other's statuses. Yeah. And it's like sub for sub. Yeah. Basically, you're like, I really want to feel like people are following what I'm doing and care. So mm -hmm. I'll pretend to care about what you're doing if you pretend to care about what I'm doing. And then neither one of us have to try very hard to get any attention. And I really yeah. thought that was interesting, the concept that social media is essentially tricking us into accepting a lower value from ourselves and others, mm -hmm. because we can't push ourselves if we're now satisfied. We're like, well, all I wanted was people to notice me, and now I have it, so I guess I don't need to work very hard on any of those cool ideas I had filed away. Yeah. Yeah, that's a tough one, because sometimes I'll think, like, I haven't posted on Instagram for a while, or you know, I haven't sent a Snapchat for a while, and then I'll stop myself and be like, well, maybe the reason I haven't done that is because nothing I've done recently is all that exciting and needs to be shared. Like there's no reason for me to post a picture of myself working at a coffee shop or something. That's, that's not, that's not quality content. Yeah. And so I, I it is something to keep in mind. Really interesting. Mm -hmm. But, and as I said before, I've taken this, this stuff's not on my phone. So that's basically yeah. the same implementation as the last lesson. But I thought that concept was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Cool. So my next one, uh, and this was a pretty quick one, but I wrote down in my implementation plan something he mentioned in the book, which is that you should constantly be gauging the usefulness of your chosen rituals and practices, maybe your chosen depth philosophy, and then you should tweak them. So say waking up at eight and being to work by nine isn't working for you. You find that you get tired at noon. Maybe you need to wake up a little bit earlier and start your work at, I don't know, 7 a.m. Just basically be 
just be paying attention to every single aspect that you have deliberately chosen to put into place. And if it doesn't work after a good test period, then try something else. Yeah. And this reminded me of something that I read in a different book. The book I'm reading currently is called The 33 Strategies of War by Robert Greene. And one of the lessons from that book is that you want to avoid leaning too heavily on the strategies of what he calls the quote unquote last war. So uh, the lesson in this particular chapter of the book is that strategy is mainly a skill of being able to analyze what's going on in the battlefield at the moment and to adapt to that circumstance. And the, the, the thing that a lot of commanders and militaries and governments and people in their everyday lives fall into, the trap they fall into, is they will look at the strategy that worked in previous wars. Or they will look at the rule book. Or uh, the, the worst one is they'll look at what worked in the last war, the very previous one, because it's the one that's most fresh in their memory. And it's the one where they remember this is the, you know, the, the very closest in the past challenge we've overcome that was a strategy that worked and they will all, they will use that strategy in the new war. So if you do that, then you're robbing yourself of that readiness to adapt to a new circumstance. The example he gives in the book is uh, when Napoleon was commanding the French revolutionary army and Prussia, not Russia, Prussia was wanting to go crush them. And at the time the Prussian military had so many wins and so much just deep military history, all this amazing training. Their soldiers basically looked like toy soldiers that could turn a dime and march in crazy formations, you know, beautiful synchronization, all kinds of stuff. So they were very confident that they were going to beat Napoleon. And they get into battle and they get absolutely crushed because they were not prepared to deal with Napoleon's strategy, which was very different than the other militaries of the time. He would basically do guerrilla warfare. He would send out tiny little pockets of soldiers that didn't have a whole lot of numbers, but they would be incredibly mobile. They would be empowered to make decisions on their own instead of waiting for uh, the command structure to send orders down a really long, slow chain. And they were able to adapt on the fly. Whereas the Prussian military is like in these gigantic boxy formations, turning on dimes and dying by the thousands. So... Prussia actually learned from that. After that defeat, they established what was called their war council, where they had, instead of the king or the emperor or one guy, whoever got into power at the time, making the military decisions, they had like this think tank of military leaders who their entire job was to take all the information from past battles, distill it down into useful strategies, but also to be basically dedicated to taking information from the current conflict and using it to their advantage to adapt on the fly. So if you can do that with whatever circumstances you have right now, whether it be uh, maybe a new a new obligation, a new class schedule, whatever it may be, use that to adapt your deep work practices and you're gonna be more successful in them. Cool. Yeah. Okay, so um, was that your second one? or That was my one? second one. Okay, well then I'm on my third. We've got this part of the book, which is something, it's a concept that I had read about before and I was actually starting to do before this book, mm -hmm. but the idea that scheduling your day out is more useful than just having a to-do list. Okay. Like literally writing out what you're going to do at which time of the day. And 
this is just because it takes it takes away a lot of decision making throughout the day. You can't be like, okay, what things should I be doing now? And then you wait, yeah. you wait 30 minutes trying to decide what thing you should be doing now when mm -hmm. you could have completed something. So basically the way I was doing it before was I was scheduling out what I would do throughout the day on Google Calendar. And that was working out pretty well. Even things like schedule in lunch break, schedule in and put in the laundry, schedule in just everything, everything that I would have to do, little errands I need to run, answer this email, mm -hmm. and do this work in a big chunk. And I'm still doing that now, but I'm doing it now <laughs> in a notebook so that I can basically take away one more thing that I would need to glance at my phone for updates on. Yeah. But I found that idea to be really useful to me. I've, I do a lot better when I can follow my schedule throughout the day, and I can when I'm done with it, I'm done with the schedule. I don't need to do any more. I can stop worrying about it. Have you had difficulty with sticking to your schedule? Yes. Because, I mean, that's that's one thing I struggle with. But I actually have a couple things that I do. And he says in the book, you can adapt the schedule throughout the day because the biggest benefit of doing something like this isn't that you rigidly stick to whatever you said before. Mm -hmm. It's that you're spending your time on purpose. You're choosing what to do with it. So if something else comes up through the day, you can just okay, sit down for five minutes. I got to rearrange this because this is how my day is structured now. Yeah. Even if it's just picking something and you have to adapt a couple times, it's better than just winging it from a to-do list. Mm -hmm. But also, if I get really off track, what I've been doing is if there's a gap in my calendar because I just couldn't focus, I couldn't do anything, or I got really thrown off, I write down in a big box between those hours, this is why I couldn't. And I'm like, okay. Oh. I had a bad sleeping habit over the holiday, so then first day I have some problems, and I write in a big box right at the top, waking up at 10.30 ruins everything. <laughs> so now I can flip yeah, back through and be like, what things are messing me up the most, mm -hmm. and how can I fix them? Okay, so you're creating a list. Yeah, so I'm attempting to use it, and when it fails, I write down why it fails, so now I can flip through and fix those things. That's a good idea. Yeah, I, I was doing something similar. And I need to get back to it. The holidays kind of crushed it. But what I would do, and you can see it, maybe I'll take a screenshot of it, shot of it for the show notes. Uh, I would basically create a column on a sheet of notebook paper. And I would, I would draw it so I could probably fit four if I needed to. But most days there's just one or two where I'd write, you know, the hours of the day down the page from 6 a.m. to about 6 p.m. And then I'd block off what I wanted to do in those hours. And I would try to plan it realistically instead of getting overconfident and thinking, you know, I can do a video in three hours. It's like, no, this this whole day is video. And I try to schedule breaks in between. So I kind of have that day plan going on as well. And that's been pretty helpful for me. Uh, also helpful for keeping me in that deep work mode of thinking in the mornings. So my final lesson, and that was your final lesson, right? Yep. So my final lesson is... If you have a big task to work on, one way that you can really get yourself kickstarted into doing it and get it done very quickly is by doing what, what Cal calls a grand gesture. And a grand gesture, well, what have I always called it? I think I've always called it like maniac work nights or something or like, like a hack night. Uh, occasionally in college, like a friend and I would just go to the library or go to the DMU and just spend hours there but basically the, the the idea here is to do something slightly crazy to just massively commit yourself 
to a task. So the examples he gives in the book, number one, are uh, J.K. Rowling. When she was writing the final Harry Potter book, she was having a bit of writer's block. She was finding it difficult to get writing done with all of her all of her commitments and all the people coming by and everything. So what she did is she checked herself into this huge fancy hotel in Edinburgh, Scotland. And I believe it was a thousand dollar a night hotel. That's pretty intense. Mm-hmm. And it also was right across the street from this amazing, huge cathedral, I believe. So she checked herself into this amazing location. It cost a fantastic amount of money. I'm sure it was affordable for her, but still kind of a big thing. And she just wrote the whole time, whole time doing that. I know that the YouTuber CGP Grey does something similar occasionally. He's in London, by the way. Uh, You probably don't know that. So occasionally he will just book a ticket to Amsterdam. And when he's in Amsterdam, he checks into this nice hotel and he basically doesn't leave the hotel. He just like he's not sits. allowed to leave until he does something. Yeah, it's not like he's going to, to Amsterdam for a big vacation. He just goes to this hotel. Nobody talks to him. He grows like a grizzled beard and nobody wants to have anything to do with him. And he just stays in his room and writes and then eventually goes and gets the continental breakfast or goes and gets dinner in the restaurant by himself. <laughs> and he just uses that to write and yeah. to get work done. You know, there was a, another writer named Peter Shankman who booked a business class ticket from NYC to Tokyo. So he sat up in the front of the plane, no Wi-Fi in the plane. So he started writing his book. He gets to Tokyo, goes to the lounge, gets an espresso, then gets straight back on the plane and goes back to New York. Spent $4,000 literally just to travel across the world. And that sounds insane and sounds crazy, stupid and wasteful. And in some respects it is, but that was a huge psychological commitment device to really build up the task in his mind, to just insanely psychologically commit to whatever he had to do. And he got it done. And I've done some similar things in the past. One of the ones that sticks out in my mind is uh, when I was in my senior year, I had a independent study class where I had basically negotiated my way out of a required class that I didn't want to take which I think you got out of the same class. It was the networking one. Uh, Didn't you test out of that one? Yeah, I tested out of that one. So you tested out of that one because you had your networking degree. Uh, and I wasn't able to test out of it, but I knew that it wasn't going to be useful. So I was able to negotiate my way out of that one. Actually, you know what? I don't think it was that class. It was a different one. It was some. It was, actually, you know, I can't even remember what it was because I never took it. But there was some oh, yeah, required sense, class actually. in the MIS curriculum uh, that I didn't want to take. So I was able to negotiate my way out of it by replacing it with a independent study. So what I chose to do was develop an iPhone app and I was trying to do it in my free time at college, wasn't making a whole lot of progress. And then my friend Alex, who lives down in Austin, or at least did at the time, told me about this event that was going on in Austin. It's called Finish Up Weekend. And the concept was basically the opposite of a startup weekend. And Startup Weekend, it's a 54 hour event, from Friday afternoon to Sunday, where you come in, people pitch their ideas for a startup, people pick the best ones, form teams, and just go crazy trying to build it. Well, finish up weekend is, hey, if you're a creative person, if you've got a project you've been putting off for a long time, come to this workspace, we are going to get together, and we're going to do basically the same thing without the startup ideas at the front. We're just going to come in with work, and we're going to spend 54 hours going ham to do it. 
And uh, so I went and I was like, that's what I'm gonna do. I bought an iPhone development book. I brought it with me. I spent $600 on a plane ticket and I had to skip a test in one of my classes and make it up later. But I got down to Austin and actually I didn't end up needing to use the book because I met one of the people who worked at Treehouse, which is an online training library, very similar to lynda.com for uh, web development and programming tutorials. And they had like a full iPhone development course on their site. So he was like, here, you can sign up, just take it. I spent the entire weekend going through all their iPhone development tutorials and built two apps in two and a half days. Nice. So that was incredibly powerful, incredibly productive. And I think if, if you have a huge thing that you've been putting off, doing something like this, doing a, a grand gesture can be just the thing you need to kind of give you that psychological boost you need to do it. Yeah, you're making it this big dramatic thing, like mm -hmm. like the climax of a movie. You're like, this is the part where it happens and it's gonna feel amazing. Yeah, exactly. And uh, back in that 33 Strategies of War book, he talks about this death ground concept where you know a corner, cornered animal is much more dangerous than an animal that has another escape route. You know, you put a man in a situation where it's fight or die, and they're gonna fight ten times more ferociously than yeah. they would if they know they could just run away or retreat if they needed to. Well, this isn't you know committing yourself to dying if you don't get your thing done. But if you know, I spent six hundred dollars on a plane ticket and I'm a thousand miles away from home right now, and I'm at an event with. 20 other people who are working their butts off, I'm going to work my butt off. You know, that the examples where you have to spend a bunch of money, that's kind of like inverse B-minder. Yeah, it kind of is. You pay first and feel stupid if you wasted it, as opposed to you have to pay if you didn't do it. That's true, yeah. But either way is, is effective, I think. So that was my final lesson. Uh, the main things I have implemented right now, number one, I'm planning out my entire day blocking out everything on my computer before noon and after 9 p.m. using cold turkey. I'm also using an app called Cold Turkey Writer, which I talked about on my YouTube channel. And that one basically turns your computer into a typewriter. So you set a word count goal and you hit go. And until you hit that word count goal, you cannot do anything else on your computer. You can't get out of the app at all. That's pretty cool. So I use that to get just a bunch of brainstorm writing done. Um, I bought myself a pair of noise canceling headphones. I did try the ones that you have which are the Beats Studio Wireless. Yeah. And because I have a gigantic melon dope, head. But you, you seem to be very sensitive to things that squeeze your head. <laughs> I don't remember what we were talking about, but there were like three other things that also bothered you on your head. So what are you Yeah, do? things that are on my head and squeeze. I don't know. Well, I mean, I think it's mainly headphones. What else could it have been? I don't know what else it could have been, but it was something else. Glasses? Whatever. Something? No idea. Oh, when I was in, when I was in eighth grade, uh, my football helmet. Oh yeah, I don't yeah, know if it was too that. small, but it like hurt my head like crap. Yeah, you just had a bunch um, of stories about stuff squeezing your head. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I bought those Beats and I tried them out for a while. They sound good, but they just don't extend quite enough for my head. I guess my head is just too big. So after about ten minutes, they would start to hurt and I couldn't concentrate. So I took them back and I got the uh, the Bose QC thirty fives, which are quite a bit more expensive, but for me they've been worth it because I can go work in basically any environment, even the library, which is supposed to be quiet. Oh, the adaptive noise-canceling stuff is so cool. Yeah. Yeah, all the screaming babies in the library cannot pierce my adaptive noise-canceling yeah. technology. So that's been useful. And I think those are the main ones for now. So I've just been really trying to implement a lot of the things in this book. I've got more things 
written down to try in the future. Yeah, this there's so I'll much more than what we've talked about. This book is, yep. well, it's deep. It's very to, deep. To, you know, half title drop. Yeah, and I've been meaning to update my Essential Books page. I've got uh, one new book on there as we record this, and I'm going to try to get more on there. It's just been a very busy time. But uh, the upshot of that is I think Deep Work may be my number one recommended book for students at this point. Because reading it, I just realized, like, this is something we're all having problems with. And I, I'm i not exaggerating when I say probably 35 to 40% of the questions I get emailed are related to the problems that this book talks about. I can't focus. I can't get myself to do my work. All these kind of things. Like, this book talks about it. So, highly recommended. I think you should check it out. Yeah. Boom. So once again, show notes are over at CIGpodcast.com slash 140. You can go check out all the links to the concepts we talked about in this episode, to some of the gear we mentioned, uh, and also to get this book if you want to give it a read, which I definitely think you should. You can also, if you want, go over to iTunes. There's a link right on the page of the show notes page to give this podcast a rating and review. And if you do that, that helps to bump the show up the rankings like we mentioned earlier on and It makes us happy and gets the show out to more new potential listeners. So thanks for listening. And until next week, stay cute.